Hey guys, I had Clifton Gray on the show with me this week. Clifton is an improviser that you might have seen at the Second Beat Theater or the Torch Theater here in town. The Torch is where my wife and I saw him. We decided to stop by, as we occasionally do on Saturday nights, to catch an improv show. And we saw him perform his solo show, Nine Blanket, which we thought was pretty impressive. And I was personally pretty curious about how he developed it. So I decided to stop her after the show and ask him if he was willing to talk about just that. So that's what this conversation is. It's Clifton and I at Urban Beans discussing improv theories and the confidence you have to build up to get on stage solo to do improv. So kick back, relax, and enjoy Clifton Gray. Phoenix. I'm Tony Machetti and I've got Clifton Gray with me. How are you doing Clifton? I'm great. How are you? <laughs> Fantastic. Thank you. So I am glad we finally got a chance to meet because I know we were going to be doing this uh, a while back and you said you couldn't because you were singing actually. Right. So that was a part of your, <laughs> your repertoire that I didn't know mm-hmm. existed. So let's take it back to the beginning. So what, what came first for you? What was the first artistic endeavor that you did? I, I performed in a play my senior year of high school. I went to Coronado here in town. And I was a I was an extra in the Odd Couple, and Coronado, at the time and probably still today, to be fair, was not a very artistically inclined school. The play my senior year they did the Odd Couple, and they literally didn't have enough people try out for all the parts. Oh jeez! <laughs> and the Odd Couple is you know, there's only yes. what there's Oscar, there's Felix, there's the Poker Buddies. That's about it. <laughs> and they didn't have enough people try out for all the parts. And one of my friends. Uh, got the part of Oscar and asked me if I was interested in doing it. And I said, sure. So I ended up being Speed. And one of the theater techs ended up being uh, Murray. <laughs> so anyhow, I did that. And I was like, that was fun. That was really fun. I ended up trying out for the talent show. Uh, I performed a country song at the talent show because I just grew up on country. And so, if it doesn't mean to catch up, but okay. were you already singing personally at that point? Were you doing lessons? I was not, and I really have actually not ever taken singing lessons. I'm just a karaoke hack that likes to <laughs> sing. But that was kind of my earliest thing with it was, you know, I, I enjoyed singing in private, but I had a lot of stage fright, and I never went out for anything when I was younger until, like I said, I hit my senior year of high school. I was like, yeah, what the heck? What am I doing? So I tried out for the talent show, and I ended up being in that play. And then I just kind of drifted away. Like I got, after I graduated high school, I ended up getting involved in business. I went to ASU for a semester, <laughs> and was just like, this isn't for me. I was so burnt out on school. I got into a lot of like advanced AP stuff, you know, gifted programs and all these things. I never felt like I still to this day. I'm just like I'm not smart. I just remember things really well. I'm I'm a I'm a thumb drive. You know, and like, but they throw me in these programs, and I'm like, I don't want to do extra work. I want to, <laughs> I want to screw around during study hall with my friends. You know, so by the time I hit my senior year of high school, I was just like, I'm done. And then I went to ASU, and it was like more of the same. And I'm like, I need to take a break. And it just ended up being, you know, a permanent hiatus. So, but I didn't really perform a whole lot for the next five or six years. And when I, it was about 2004, 
yeah, it was the fall of 2004. And I had a friend of a friend who said, hey, uh, my uncle is in the music program at Scottsdale Community College, and he's doing this electronic music slash voices. You know, it was like avant-garde kind of project. And she was like, he needs somebody with like a really, a, a really wide-ranging vocal range. And she knew me from like, you know, going out to karaoke with me, and, I, and I'll sing a little bit of anything at karaoke. So I go over and I try out, and the guy's name is Dr. Steve Meredith, and he says, well, I sure wish we, we could have you in my choir. We're really short on men this year. And I'm like, yeah, what the heck? So I ended up joining the choir, and I was the only bass for two years, and just kind of got into it with that. So I did choir for several years. I ended up joining a couple of community choruses. Had friends who performed at the Torch Theater, or with the Torch. Like, the Torch wasn't, the actual physical location wasn't even quite open yet. And I had some friends who performed there who said, you might want to check this out because I've always had just kind of a whack ball sense of humor, you know? But my sense of humor was always in the moment. People were like, you're so funny, you should be a stand-up. I'm like, I don't, I, don't, I wouldn't be good as a stand-up. I can't do rehearsed humor. It's totally different, yeah. Yeah, and then somebody had said, it's called long-form improvisation. And, you know, at the time, I'd read most of the internet already. <laughs> I'd never heard of long-form improvisation. I knew whose line. And I said, was it like whose line? And they were like, yeah, it's a cousin of whose line. You know, whose line is what we call short form. Right. So I went and checked out a show at Space 55. And I literally, I watched one show and I walked out. I'm just like, this is what I need to do with my life. I left Space 55 that night and I immediately went home and I was just like, how much are classes? It was like love at first sight when I watch people on stage. I'm just like, you, and you know, you can tell her, you can tell they're making it up as they go. You can tell it's unscripted. And I'm like, that's exactly what I want to do. So that was 2011, and at this point I was 30, and it just took me that long to kind of discover what I really like in performing. But now I, you know, I do the torch, I perform at second beat, do long form there, and I've got my thumb in several pies now. So, but it really helped me to open up as a performer, you know, and also as a person, like, help me be more comfortable with myself too. So. so so what do you think it was that, that flipped that switch, that pulled that trigger, if you had to put your finger on it? It was, it was that it taught me to be okay with being myself, but also that I could go on stage and I could be another character for a little bit, but it was okay. And, it, you know, Del Close, I believe it is Del Close, and I might be wrong, and if I'm wrong, people will correct me. But I believe, I can't think of the top of my head. I guarantee head. you they will not correct you. No, okay, <laughs> well, it was either Del Close or it might have been uh, Keith Johnstone, but one, one of the great great-grandfathers of, of improvised theater says that your characters should be you wearing a thin veil on stage and I learned that as I was performing you know my early performances like you know when you go up on stage and you try to be funny it's not gonna work but my characters that have pulled from my own experience and have you know I've taken my own experience and used that to inform how the characters tick in a funny way, I realized that it was making me more comfortable with myself because I've always been like, oh, I, don't, oh, I don't like myself. And it just, within a couple of years of doing improvised theater, it was just, I became more all right with myself off stage while I was performing on stage. It was an interesting thing, but showed me that it was okay to do what I wanted. And, you know, I changed choruses. I was kind of scared to leave my, my second chorus. And I was like, no, I can leave my second chorus. I'm not happy. I want to go do something where I'm happy. I'm not presently in a chorus. It just kind of, you know, if I get the bug, I'll, I might join another one. But yeah, definitely it was it was learning to be okay with myself and learning that it was Jill Bernard, this one I know. Jill Bernard says, you are enough. You are enough. And it was 
you don't have to try hard when you're on stage. You just use yourself slightly augmented to inform your characters. And it's like, oh, yeah, I've got lots of experiences that are worthwhile. That's interesting. That I've, I haven't heard that quote before, the first one you were talking about. But that is really interesting because in... Acting, there's, I think it was a Chekhov quote that's very similar. That whenever you're on stage, it's it's always you, but a little different. It's the same thing, but different. Mm -hmm. Because he believed that you could never not, you know, be yourself. You know, you always bring the same tools to the table and, and that type of thing. So that is fascinating that that's a whole other style of theater kind of brought that same methodology to it. That's interesting. So yeah. what I'm curious, though, to kind of jump back all the way, though, you said at that point when you went to see the first Torch show, you had seen some Who's Line and stuff, right? Yeah. Seen some stuff online. So what is it about that that didn't connect for you? What is it about the short form games and stuff like that that didn't have that same appeal to you? Short form connected for me, but I didn't even know that we had short form in Phoenix. I just wasn't aware of it. I'd never really gotten out there to look for it. Was Jester's around by then? Was that what Jester's it was? Jester's was definitely around by then, as was NCT. I believe those were the two that were operating at the time for short form, but they both had physical locations. I used to live, you know, I went to Coronado. Jester's was on Scottsdale and McDowell for a long time, and I used to eat at Super King China Buffet right over there. <laughs> a few doors down, we, we'd go to, we'd go to the, the British Open Pub all the time. I can't believe I, I knew Jester's was there because I was like, why is it apostrophe Z? I didn't know what they did there. <laughs> I did not. I had no idea what they did there. I never, I never knew that that's what they did. I probably would have fallen right in love with it. I never noticed there was an apostrophe. <laughs> yeah, it was gesture apostrophe Z, and I'd, I'd drive by it. You know, if I was going to the bank or whatever, I'd be like, "That's weird." But I never, I knew it. Now I get it. It's like, okay, it's irreverent. Now it makes sense. I had no idea. I just didn't know what was there. Like long form being my first entree into the improvised theater field, I have, I've seen plenty of good short form, you know, and. That, uh, NCT, Jesters, Improv Mania, it's, they do really good short form. You know, I've seen, I've seen poorly executed short form. I've seen poorly executed long form. I've done poorly executed long form. But it just kind of like after I, you know, I, I didn't see a short form show right away. And I went and checked out a short form show probably about six months after I started taking classes at The Torch. And I watched it and I'm like, I enjoyed it. But I was like, I don't know if I would enjoy that as much as a performer. I like the open-endedness of long form. Mm -hmm. That's what I like about it. I like that it can go in any direction. There's not a set end to it. I mean, you have a time limit, but I feel like it's more open and less regimented. And even at that, there there are formats in long form that are very regimented, and you have to hit your beats. And, you know, the Herald, everybody knows the Herald. It is a great thing to learn, and everybody in long form learns it because it's a great starting point because you can use that and be like, well, it's like a herald except X, Y, and Z. Performing heralds, I personally don't care for it. That could be sacrilegious, but it's always like if you're not, I don't know, how, do you have familiarity with the herald format? Sure. Yeah, so it's a lot like, I tell people that don't know about it, it's a lot like an episode of Saved by the Bell because the show starts and there's a group scene at the top. And then the first scene after that is, oh, look, it's Zach hitting on Kelly. And then it's, oh, here's Slater and Jesse. What a, what a meathead. And then, oh, here's Screech, and he's trying to hit on Lisa. So there's three scenes. Right. And then there's a group game. It's lunchtime. And then we come back, and then it's Zach and Kelly again, and Slater and Jesse, and Screech and Lisa. And then it's like, end of the day, and then the scenes start kind of intermingling. That's a herald. And, but the problem I have with it, problem, is it's, I find it to be too regimented i like the freedom to be able to just and then again you know this is a huge sidebar but like you can get into troops that are like hey we do a very freeform herald perfect you know i just don't like doing a herald that's like a, it's a 
color by numbers herald where it's already sketched out you know exactly what's going to happen next in the show i'm kind of like eh i like the ability to kind of freewheel it you know like like i do with nine blank and i'm just like oh, i'll just do whatever i feel like there there can be that i feel like that moment in something like a herald or something even with like a short form show where it's it's like all the performers on stage kind of sound like agree like well that's the end of that yeah. okay moving on to the next thing like check off the list right, and exactly. yeah. you know it's group game time <clears throat> here comes a group game and it's like they're doing it just because they have to do a group game and it's like man if you don't want to do a group game don't do a group game <laughs> don't be out there looking like you don't want to be doing this right now because everybody can tell you don't want to be doing this right. you know and it's nice I've seen groups perform that have like you've seen somebody try to do something different and it just fractures the show because people are used to their you know the format and I like the ability to kind of freewheel it. You know, it's like I said, yeah, it's it's when you see when you see somebody going through the motions just to honor a format, it's not they're not they're not being served by the format. Now, I'm curious because I think the idea of format is very interesting. That's the idea of throwing in a gimmick. Do you feel like that is maybe this is a loaded question, more for the audience or more for the performer? I think it depends. I did definitely you know, I follow several uh, improvisers on Twitter, you know, a, a lot of the LA improvisers that I, I've been to Camp Improv Utopia a few times, and so I, I know a lot of the higher ups in the LA scene through that and both through the Phoenix Improv Festival. And um, I saw a quote from somebody, couldn't possibly tell you who it was, but a tweet ran by me the other day, and it said, "Let me let me think." It said, "A lot of times, a complicated format is not for the audience," and it was true. Like you can do a really complicated format and have it just be something that you're doing to amuse yourself or you know have it almost be an inside joke for the performers but then if an audience person comes in and is like what am i watching <laughs> you got to remember that you, you want to make it accessible to the audience too because that's what you're there for you know you can do a complicated format and do it for no audience and if you just want to do it great but you want to make a show you want to make if somebody wandered in from the street and was like i have no idea what's going on here you want them to be able to see a show and understand what's happening and be able to follow it without needing a, a manual of long-form improv formats to figure out what's happening during the show. So that's kind of... A, a structure is good, a format is good, because it, you have to hit that balance. If it's too freeform, the audience is going to be like, what? I don't... Who's that? What happened? What, you, and you kind of have you have to hit the balance in between. You don't want to be too amoebic, but you also at the same time don't want it to be too regimented because then the audience is going to feel like they're not in on the joke. So how do you... How do you explore that as, as a performer? Because I know you've done, like, Skewed News Hour, and that uh, obviously has been a hit for forever. Um, so what is it about something like that that works that other things don't? Uh, skewed News is a format, and it's basically what's called the Armando, um, which was named after a gentleman named Armando who apparently was not very good at performing but was a great storyteller. And so an Armando is a storyteller who gets up and tells a true-life story and then the improvisers take that and kind of use that as source material. They, they'll pluck themes, locations, character ideas. It won't be like, you don't get up there and tell a story about, the other day I walked my dog and this happened. They're not going to reenact it. It's not day in the life, like a short form game. But they use it as inspiration. And Skewed News does that. We, we read a news article from the actual newspaper and then use that, again, you know, locations, themes things like that so in a more literal sense with the neighborhood too yeah. yeah exactly and the neighborhood is the same way it's it's the same format but the neighborhood has a live storyteller and it works for skewed news we typically explain at the top of the show sam does uh sam haldeman when he gets up there to introduce he's you know he explains that you know it's not going to be a we're not going to reenact the news stories but we're going to use them as inspiration 
and you try to connect them somehow and you try to make the connection you know you, you don't want to beat the audience over the head with the connection but you want to be like oh i get it the news article was about uh news article was about national wildlife service releasing wolves into the wild and you know this first scene is about wolves it's two wolves out in the wild having an argument having an argument like a married couple so so that they can see where the source idea came from you know as a performer you just listen to the story and you just try to get ideas you know you'll see people when, when, when an armando's happening they'll they're really intently focus on the storyteller because you want to be able to be like i have an idea and then you jump out and that becomes your that becomes your scene yeah so i mean do you what what is it that, that you feel like makes an armando more successful than some of the more complex formats i guess that's what i'm curious about and Armando is successful because um, you you get well. I mean, the, uh, in an Armando, the storyteller would come up several times, and same thing in Skewed News. You know, we'll do three or four scenes and then read another article to get. But you you you, re, you refresh your inspiration throughout the show. You don't necessarily just take one. You know, in in conventional shows, you'll take one suggestion off the top and go from there. And in a troupe of many people, then it's it's it can be how different people uh, interpret the suggestion. Um, it's successful because it, it's a great way for everybody to be on board and it, like I said you get your inspiration refreshed throughout the show and it's also tailor made for bringing together a cast that doesn't necessarily work together very often the neighborhood cast has frequently got people sitting in people come and go it's, it's the neighborhood's cast is, is the foundation which is the teachers at the torch plus they bring in like I sit in once every couple of months if I'm available you know, or if I have some relation to the storyteller, you know, they'll invite me to sit in. Uh, they invite you know, many people that have graduated from the Torches program to sit in with them. And, and Armando is good because, like I said, it's a great way. For, for a long-form show where you just take one suggestion off the top, you want, you want to be very comfortable with your teammates. You want to have rehearsed with them. And people always say, rehearse improv improvisation? What? No, you're, you're learning how to read and react to things, and you're learning to get to know your teammates' format style so that you know that you're all speaking the same language. Armando's nice because you don't have to follow the same line all the way through the show. It's not as critical to stay with it because the storyteller's going to come up and might give everybody a brand new idea the next time out. So it's a great way to have people guest, you know, sit in and kind of guest with your troop. Traveling, people traveling through, people that don't sit in very often. It's, it's, it's a great way to kind of have a community show that's not a jam. So how... Again, I don't know if there's a really definite answer to this, but in your opinion, how long does it take or what is the turning point for being comfortable with an ensemble? It is, obviously, it's, it's uh, subjective because it's going to depend on the performers. Typically, like, the Torch would, we used to have a program where we would do a lottery where people would submit for, if their name's in a bucket, and get drawn out and be like, okay, well, then you do four rehearsals and then do a run of shows. You know, four to five rehearsals, you know, you kind of start building a trust. I mean, there's groups that have been together for years and years and years, and they can practically com communicate telepathically. And you can see it on stage. You can just see that they're, they're, they're pretty much thinking with one brain. You know, for an ensemble, it, it depends on several factors, like the, like the experience level of the performers and if they've ever performed together before. But, you know, you put five or six strangers together on a troupe to do a herald. After a few rehearsals, you've probably got a pretty good idea of everybody's play style what their strengths are and then you can speak to the strengths of the individual performers and you know start to put together a more coherent show do you feel like it's ever a hindrance for an ensemble to work together too long it can be 
And again, it all goes back to the individual talents of the performers involved. There's a troupe in Los Angeles called Beer Shark Mice. They do what is called a slacker, and it's basically it's just a show that basically there's a scene, and then they follow one character from that scene into the next scene, and then a different character into the next scene. That's how the show goes. But they've been together for 15-plus years, I think. They've got Pat Finn, the Toyota-thon guy, the, the Toyota guy. Everybody knows him. He's in Beer Shark Mice. David Koechner is in Beer Shark Mice. And, and obviously now they do other, plenty of other things. They draw, Oh, Neil Patrick Flynn, the janitor from uh, Scrubs, is in Beer Shark Mice. So, you know, they all have a lot of things they do now, so they, they don't get together as often. But when they do get together, it's just like, oh, what a, what a show. I've seen yeah. him a few times. Now, I personally have been in groups where we've we've performed for maybe nine months, done a show a month, and I'll hit the end of I'll hit the end of it. I'll be like, "Hey guys, I'm gonna I'm gonna step out." You know, I don't I personally don't feel like I have anything left to explore with the group, and you know, it's you don't want to stay in a group until it's gone stale and everybody hates each other. Some groups are some groups are built to last a very long time, and some groups it's like, "Hey, let's have fun for a bit, and then then we'll move on." You know, yeah, I'm a, I'm in a group called New Heart where we were very, very serious for about four years, and I kind of went through a I went through a vision quest, and I was like, hey, guys, I need to leave. And so we decided to scrap the troop when I left because it was the other three people in the group didn't want to replace me. They were like, hey, let's just put it on hold. And then about ten months later, Sam asked us if we wanted to perform a second beat, and we just got together and did it. And it was like, oh man, okay, I just needed a break. It was me, it was my fault, because I'm the one that wanted to leave. But like, we got back together, it's like, this is great. Now we perform monthly over there, we don't rehearse in between. We feel like, you know, we've, we've been performing, we've all been performers. We all met at the Torch when we were all in level one and two. So that's how long, it, that's, how, that's how far back it goes. And we took a breather, and or I took a breather, and then, you know, when Sam asked if we wanted to perform again, now we're having, we're having a great time. We performed at Ghost Fest at the Torch, and I think this is a group, like, we definitely, the four of us are good friends, and we performed sporadically and just to kind of suit our own selves, and we had a show in Rachel's driveway on Sunday after Thanksgiving, just because, you know, we felt like we invited our friends over, ate leftovers, and had a show. And, see, like, for example, like, that group, you know, I could see Newhart just going on, you know, maybe we'll take six months off, and they're like, hey, let's do a show, and we'll get back together, kind of a thing. Like, I could see us being together for a long time. You know, we're no big name troop, but but then, like I said, then again, I've been in groups where it's just been like the, the, the troops had some fun. It's like, okay, well, that was fun. And, you know, somebody be like, do you want to keep the group together? And everybody else is like, no, this. Yeah, no. we no, we were good. No it was a lot of fun. Right. Yeah. No hard feelings. But hey, let's let it go. Interesting. So since we brought up classes, too, I'm curious, because you started off just taking the courses after seeing the show and you just naturally worked your way up the ranks until becoming basically a, a stock player, a repertoire player for the Torch. What was that evolution like for you, seeing that happen for yourself, just taking those those steps up the ladder? I never really knew where it was going to go. You know, I started out, and I was really taking it one step at a time. I took level one, and then level two was there, and I took level two, and then I didn't have money for level three. And at that point, they decided to, they, we, we had had, when the theater opened in, in July 2011, we had an intern named Jolene von Middelar, who had, was going to NAU. She's a native of the Netherlands and is back in the Netherlands now. But she asked about doing an internship at the Torch, because she had to do an internship at a theater. 
And so she actually came down from NAU and, and interned at the Torch for six months as like her last semester of, of her degree she was working on. So after she left, they were like, well, you could be our intern. Because <laughs> I'd, I'd hang around. I'd work during the, you know, I'd volunteer when I wasn't, I wasn't performing much early on because I was in, just learning my way around. Um, I didn't do a show outside of uh, student shows until Newhart did our first show. So I'd volunteer all weekend. I'd work the box office all night Friday and all night Saturday. So basically for level three, they're like, you want to be our intern? You can be our intern. Well, you know, you'll take the class for free. You just have to work 24 hours during the eight weeks. And that was easy enough to knock out. So I ended up doing the rest of the classes on internship. And after I graduated, they asked me if I wanted to be on the board. And I was on the board for about three years and then stepped down. I kind of figured it was, I was, I didn't feel comfortable being a policymaker or in charge. And so I, so I resigned from the board and, you know, and I'm still around. I still do the financials. I go in every Sunday morning and I do the financials and I patch up the walls because people love to kick the walls. I don't get it, man. <laughs> I don't get it. People love to kick the walls. And so I go, you know, so I, I spackle and paint and fill the water jugs and you know, there's little stuff around the theater, but sort of just, I just kept taking the classes. And then after a while, I was just like, yeah, I'm going to do this, aren't I? I'm going to go through and graduate. And I still, you know, I've been doing it for six and a half years now. I don't view myself as a big player, you know. I don't perform much at the Torch anymore anyhow. I'm sort of in between groups right now, like Newhart performs at Second Beat, but I was in a musical troupe called Judd, and then a two-person troupe called Desdemona, and both troops I was in with a good friend of mine, Carrie Benton, she passed away this summer. So no more Desdemona, and then Judd, we had one of our players has a toddler, and a full-time job, and she does sketch comedy with the Cosmonauts. And so we were kind of discussing, like, we're going to have to rebuild. Like, we, you know, we, are we going to rebuild? And those of us that remain were just like, let's hang it up for now. So we hung it up. So I don't have anything else scheduled at the Torch at the moment. You know, I'll be around. I'll do jams and you know, come up with other stuff. But it ebbs and flows, and, and I think a lot of people do that. You know, there's the people that are there, and they're, they're in the house troops, and they perform all the time. And I'm around-ish. You know, I live around the corner, so it's easy for me to pop over to the theater if, you know, if, if I'm not doing something with my wife and just kind of come by. And it just sort of, it's nice to just move at my own pace with it. Well, speaking of that, though, you did just finish a run of Nine Blanket, which is how I first met you, which is kind of the thing that inspired me to, to want to speak with you because I thought it was pretty ambitious and really curious about kind of the genesis of that. So if you don't mind walking me through how you got the idea and why you decided to run with it. Yeah, so Nine Blanket is a solo show. It's just me, and um, improvisers do solo shows all the time. That's that's not that's not unusual. Um, either you can play all the characters on stage, or you can just play one character and act like the conversation's going on. I do a little bit of both. It came about because in March 2016, I was scheduled to perform during Cage Match, which is the last show of the weekend on Saturday night. And um, I was performing with a friend, and they couldn't make it to the show. And I said, you know what? I'm just going to do a solo show. Why not? I'll just tackle this. And I really enjoyed it. I had a lot of fun out there, and just, so I kind of started working on the format, figuring out how it was going to work, and I kind of hit on the idea of, I call it an improvised three-act play. So I start off with three words from the audience, and I use each of those words to kind of set a scene, in different areas of the stage, center, left, right, and 
I'll just kind of I'll, I'll, I'll kind of repeat the word a few times, get an idea of what the word kind of makes me think of, and then I go with it. It just depends on you know what what the word is said and where my frame of mind is. I'm very careful to not come out with any anything in my head because I don't want anything to seem like it's you know like I'm reciting anything, and I just go from there. I start off with however many characters I feel like having in the scene. The full show, the nine blanket full show, which I do during the run, is 45 to 50 minutes. If I do it for a shorter show slot, I did often did nine blanket in place of Desdemona when Carrie was ill, and it would be 20 or 25 minutes. I might just do one scene with a lot of characters in it. There's one that was set in a Whataburger in Iowa. I don't even know if they have Whataburgers in Iowa. <laughs> but it was a couple. It was two men who went to a clowning convention on a whim. And so they were at this Whataburger, and there was a very harried cashier and two kids playing chess and a farmer that came in because it's Iowa. You know, and it just kind of, it just sort of developed from there. But yeah, Nine Blanket is not always comedy it's always comedic it it can veer to the dramatic it's veered to the very dramatic sometimes it's been downright tragic once in a while but more often than not it's kind of you know it it doesn't really hit that hard it just it's really just completely contingent on where my mind is at an ensemble the bigger the ensemble is the more tonally consistent their shows will probably be because a group has a certain pace they like to work at when it's just one person out there or even two people it's completely contingent on where I am at. And so, you know, if I'm having a rough day and I go out there and do a Nine Blanket show, it's probably going to be a show that's got a lot of angst and ennui and things like that. And if I'm in a pretty good mood, it's probably going to be pretty lighthearted and just, just fun. I'm glad you brought up the dichotomy between that and the ensemble. So I'm, I'm curious how that feels for you as a performer on stage, you know, during the show. Like when you are on stage by yourself, you know, versus when you know you have other people around you. How do you adapt to that? How do you change your performance based on that? It's important because, you know, there's nobody else there to back you up. If you take a risk, then you are solely responsible for it. And there's, that's both good and bad. In a two-person show, if you take a big risk, or if you, paint your char- if you paint your scene partner as something in particular, they may not be okay with it. In a solo show, you're, you're giving yourself a character. So, on the one hand, there's nobody to feel offended if you make a poor choice, but on the other hand, there's nobody to bail you out if you make a poor choice. So as a solo performer, when you're doing a solo show, you just have to be, you have to be cognizant of how the show is going, cognizant of how the scene is progressing, and whether you, you know, again, whether, whether you need to portray both sides of the conversation or whether you're okay with just talking as one person and letting the other side of the conversation be obvious, there's a lot of choices to make with it. And there are classes and workshops for solo workshops, or solo shows, I should say. I never took one. I just sort of was like, I'm just going to do this. I'm going to go out there and just do it. You know, it's like I didn't really stop to think about it. There were the ramifications. It wasn't something I planned on doing. Like I said, it was a spur-of-the-moment decision when my my scene partner, 20 minutes before cage match, was like, hey, I can't make it. And I just said, all right, forget about it. Well, I'll just do a solo show then. It's okay. And ended up going on like a four-show run then, and I've done it a few times since then. So... Was there a turning point for you confidence-wise to step into that position where you knew you were going to be okay doing most of the heavy lifting yourself? Yeah, I had tried a solo show in Ghost Fest 2012. So I'd only been performing for, you know, barely more than a year at that point. And I had seen somebody do a solo show and I was like, I can do that. And I signed up for a solo show and it was so bad. (laughs) I mean, for starters, it was at 530 in the morning and I had been up all night. So... 
because it's Ghost Fest. Ghost Fest is our 36-hour straight marathon yeah. where we don't take breaks. And, you know, normal people go home and sleep, but some people try to stay awake the whole time. So I'm up there on stage at about 5.35 in the morning, and every time I closed my eyes for a second, I felt myself starting to doze off. And I didn't know what I was doing with the show. I, I thought I was going to have plenty of time to play with it, and I just kind of ended up getting hung up on some conversations, and it ended up being one 16-minute long scene. Never really went anywhere, and I was so disgusted with it that I never really considered doing a solo show again as a thing. I never thought about it until the opportunity presented itself out of necessity wherein there wasn't anybody else to perform with me and my options were to just do it or scrap entirely and just forfeit. So, you know, it took me three and a half more years after that first experience with it to really feel comfortable with jumping out there and just going forward with it. But I, but I was a more seasoned performer by that point. I had been performing for almost five years and I felt like, I was like, no, you know what? I think I can do this. It's, it was a low risk situation. 10:30 at night on a Saturday, you know, the cage match audiences are not frequently very large. It is the late night show. So I didn't feel like I was risking much to just go out and give it a shot. And I went ahead and did it. Was, is that a choice I would have made three years prior, two years prior? Probably not. I wasn't at that point a, a confident enough performer and confident enough in my own abilities to think I could do it. But I had gotten to a point where in March 2016, I said, yeah, I could. Sure. Yeah, why not? You know, go out there and go out there and take a risk. So, speaking of being confident in your abilities, since you mentioned the idea of there being workshops, classes, and stuff to build specific improv skills, and obviously Second B and the Torch, and as well as the other theaters in town, all offer improv courses. This might again be a a question that has some bias to it, but what do you feel the value is in formal education when it comes to something like improvisation? I feel like the value is you can jump out there and do it you know and you can get involved in a troupe and submit for shows at, at any of the theaters as far as I know I think all the theaters have open stage time for the most part if you submit taking classes definitely helps you learn how to read and react as a character on stage and not just trying to be funny and not just trying to have the funniest line you know taking classes helps you to build coherent scenes I think is the most important thing especially in long form Having not taken classes for short form, I, it's hard for me to speak to it, but I would imagine it's m more the same. You know, it's not, especially with long form, like you want to be able to build a show that's pleasing to the audience member to watch. You don't just want it to be a melange of one-liners. And so doing it and rehearsing the art and kind of, you know, having, having some things in your pocket that you can pull out if something goes awry in the show and there's a dead moment, you know what I mean? If somebody just kind of drops the ball, it's something you can jump out and do. Start a group game, boom, done, you know, if there's, a, if there's a moment when nobody comes off the wall. But moreover, taking improv classes, a lot of people will take one or two classes and be like, okay, good, I'm good, thanks, because they don't intend to make it like their full-time hobby, but we see a lot of people take our level one class at the Torch that are like attorneys, a lot of attorneys, but people and you know people that have political aspirations, and they will take our class because they want to get better at thinking on their feet. People that are going to be in debates, or you know, again, like yes, like I said, you know, people that are in, in law, definitely helps them to be able to think on their feet and be able to react more quickly and not be stuck, you know, if they're in the middle of a debate. I encourage a lot of actors to take at least, like you said, a level one improv class because once you've done that. The 
scripted stuff is much more comfortable, in my opinion. Like, yeah, okay, I've I've already gone on stage with no preparation at all and, and had to entertain a crowd. I'm not bothered by the rest of it. I think I can go a long way. Yeah, I haven't done a lot of scripted theater. Uh-huh. I, I, I have not done any scripted theater. I had a couple parts in a couple of short films, but I do know that, you know, what you're saying is definitely true. You know, we do get people that work or perform in, in scripted theater regularly. And it's good for them to come out and do it because it also helps them to be able to emote and react more honestly while reading their scripted lines. It helps them to be able to, you know, to, to, to emote and react to something truly gives them an idea of how to do that when reading a script. Definitely, yeah. So I do want to kind of go a little bit back full circle to the idea of music because I know that you also play some instruments as well. Mm-hmm. You play at least the tuba, I know yes. for sure. So I'm, I'm curious how you incorporate that into your improv if you ever do, and what you think the relationship is between improv and, and music. I will perform my tuba in improv shows whenever given the opportunity. <laughs> we do a show every year at Ghost Fest called Cacophony of Noise, where everybody plays an instrument rather than talking. The scenes are otherwise, just like you would see in a show, but it's me holding my giant tuba, playing my tuba while somebody bangs on a xylophone in lieu of conversation. But we've also done shows where Jose Gonzalez does a show called, is it just called Pie? I think it's just called Pie. I can't remember. But he does a show with a pie. He buys a pie, like a cherry pie, and he performs the show as if the cherry pie is a scene partner. Otherwise, it's a solo show. But it's accompanied by a musician. Usually somebody on a, you know, a conventional thing like a keyboard or a, or a guitar. But one night, he was like, hey, you want to bring your tuba? So I underscored his show on my tuba and improvised music for the tuba. Uh, I did a show once called Polka with a local performer called, uh, called local performer named Chelsea Greenberg, who plays the accordion. And she took a few classes at the torch as well. And so she brought her accordion and I brought my tuba. And we would do scenes that had dramatic weight to them. And then in between, we were like a, a Greek chorus in a tragedy. And we would play a song with tuba and accordion, you know, in a polka beat. And sort of review what just happened on stage. And, you know, the old Greek chorus of, you know, finger wagging and why these people are bad. And we ended up doing a show that was 25 minutes. And we did three six-minute scenes and then three songs. <laughs> Music can definitely be involved. I mean, there, there are several very popular, nationally known musical troupes that will do, like, improvised musical theater. Judd, the troupe locally, we did that. That was, that was what we did. We did shows that were a lot like musical theater, you know, with vignettes kind of happening. There's a group called Baby Wants Candy. That's uh, very, very well-known, UCB-oriented. There's a group from Chicago called Ryman Punishment that came and did Phoenix Improv Festival this year. It's interesting seeing people do improvised singing, you know, when, when there's improvised singing or improvised music happening. You'll sometimes see seasoned performers that swear they could never do improvised singing. And it's like, well, you do improv, how hard is it? But it just, the, the idea of singing is not something they want to do. And you'll bump into that sometimes. You know, you'll get people that, that oh, I could never sing at karaoke. Really? Really? We're at a sports bar in Gilbert. You know? <laughs> you know, slam back... could not be lower. Yeah, slam back a shot of well tequila and put a song in, for Pete's sake. But there's people that, you know, I've had people from my from my office come to my shows, and they're like, I could never do that. I could never get up on stage and just, just go out there. And I'm like, it, it's not... It's never been hard for me. And it, but, but that's... 
yeah, it's just sort of a thing. You know, my 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 uh, my my friend Ryan Parks is a firefighter in Tucson, and you know, has no second thought about running headlong into a burning building to carry somebody out over his shoulder, but do a show. He know, shows that he's just like that terrifies me. I'm like that terrifies you. <laughs> But everybody's got, you know, yeah, everybody's yeah, got yeah. their thing, and not everybody, not everybody wants to perform. I think that's a good time to start kind of wrapping up everything. A couple of questions I like to ask at the end: If there's any other artist in town, doesn't have to be an improviser, that you want to give some recognition to? Not any one performer in particular. Just the various improvised the, the theaters that do improvised performances: the Torch Theater at Central and Camelback, and Second Beat Improv Theater, which is at Bethany Home and 7th Street. Both do long-form improv. You can find them by Googling them. And then there's Improv Mania in Chandler. There's Jesters, which is now at Mesa Riverview. And there is National Comedy Theater, NCT, which is on the north side of Fiesta Mall, or I guess the, the smoldering hole of what used to be Fiesta Mall. <laughs> but they're at uh, Longmore and Southern out in Mesa. It's just people performing, you know? Yeah, there's, there's a cost for tickets. It's just to keep the lights on. Every cent that the torch makes goes right back into shows or upkeep, you know, buying a new water cooler because our old one broke, things like that, you know. it's People aren't performing to get wealthy. They're doing it because they want to perform. Oh, and also uh, Space 55 just reopened, so they ended up getting forced out of their building down on uh, 7th Street and just south of Roosevelt for, you know, development, luxury condos. But they just reopened just south of the fairgrounds. They're 18th Avenue and McDowell. Yeah, right, not too far away, and... And they do everything. They do scripted. They do improv. They, they're very welcoming to improvisation. The Torch performed there for a very long time. There's just so many different things that you can do and see as far as performing arts go. And I'm not even getting into poetry, poets, poet slams. There's the there's the puppet slam down at the Great American Puppet Theater first weekend of every month. There's storytelling. Right. I know that you've done storyline a few times. Right? Yeah, yeah. Right. I've done storyline. I, I did it. The, Dan Hole and uh, Rachel Eggborough just just basically restarted Storyline as kind of a more of a slam and less of a curated show is the word I'm looking for. And did that a couple of times, and I really I like telling stories. I like telling stories. I have sat here and talked nonstop for several minutes. <laughs> and I like having a story, having an idea of a story that I'm going to tell, and, you know, it's another thing I like to do. But, you know, it's just, just support people that want to perform. And all you have to do is go and watch. You don't... <laughs> You don't have to do anything more than just go and enjoy it. Just sit down, be yeah. polite, clap when they tell you to clap, don't boo, and move right. on. <laughs> now, I know that I'm trying to wrap up, but I, you did bring up a question that I'm curious about. Just that idea that you know there are, when you think about it, five improv theaters in town, designated improv theaters in Phoenix. Mm-hmm. What do you think it is about Phoenix that like lends itself to that? I mean, we're not Chicago, we're not New York, anything like that, but that is... A surprising amount of improv designated theaters. Yeah, and, and and then also there's Bear in Mind at ASU. Sure. So you know there's improv at ASU. I think the fact that it is largely a town, it's a town with a lot of younger people in it. Not to say that you know, people of an older age. You know, I'm 36. Who am I kidding? But it's it's a burgeoning scene. You know, like when I started taking classes at the Torch, the Torch was barely open. They were just a traveling troupe at that time. Second Beat was, you know, Sam was my teacher at the Torch. Second Beat wasn't even a twinkle in his eye. Improv Mania was opened by two people that had performed at the Torch for many years. So there was NCT Jesters and then the Torch opened. And now there's two more theaters. You know, here we are. Comedy Off Main Street does improv, right? Yeah, Comedy Off Main Street. Yes, yeah. Comedy Off Main Street does improv frequently, too. With the Peel, Peel Comedy Show, Emily and Kendall, who are both lovely, wonderful people. Great point. You know, another one. It's just, I think it's, I think that, you know, NCT and Jester's opened the door 
and showed that you could do improvised theater in Phoenix and, and keep the doors open. And then the torch opened up and said, you can do long form and keep the doors open. Because long form tends to be more avant-garde and it's a little harder of a draw because it's harder to explain. And I frequently don't say long form improv. I usually just say improvised theater. And they go, oh, like whose line? I'm like, yeah, it's more like improvised play. And it's, you know, because it is long form improv is what it is. But like, you know, to, to Joe Schmo, that's my, my cube neighbor at work, you see, like, I mean, there's cities, like you said, Chicago's got, you know, so many theaters. L.A., so many theaters. You know, people frequently get fed up with their theater and open a new one. Austin, Texas, has four theaters that do long-form improv almost dedicatedly. They've got one theater that does nothing but narrative. It's gorgeous. I love it. I love watching narrative. It scares me to death because there's a plot, and if you don't finish your plot, your show would... Anyway, it's a burgeoning scene, but I think that's true for most art forms here. You know, Phoenix has really come a long way in the last 10 years, you know, with just arts in general, you know, and, and not just being a town where, where, you know, bands would come to Sun Devil Stadium and, and play an arena show. And then, Thank you very much, Phoenix! And then just on to L.A. Like, there's, there's so many performance opportunities and opportunities to get out beyond just going to the Improv in Tempe or going to a show. There are a lot of things you can do. I th- so I really, to put a button on it, I feel like the proliferation of improvised theater, both short form and long form, is definitely a microcosm of the art scene as a whole in Phoenix. All kinds of art, whether, you know, visual art, performance art, dance, comedy, what have you. I think it's all blossoming, and there are more spaces opening up that are amenable to it. That's a lovely sentiment. So, uh, moving on from that, any personal projects, websites, anything you want to plug? Nothing in particular. I just, you know, I just finished the run of Nine Blanket. So the Torch does a, at the Torch, they have a Saturday 8 p.m. show slot. And a troupe, or, you know, one crazy person, can sign up for the whole month of shows and basically do, you know, they have to submit it and say, this is what I'm going to do. It's not just something where you can just show up, go up. But a troupe will sign up and can do whatever they feel like. And that's what I did with Nine Blanket. I probably won't do it again for a while because being a solo performer, like, my character choices can get stale really fast. And so that's why I don't do Nine Blanket frequently. It's just I did it I did it last November, then I did it this November. We'll see. You know, if I do it again, I'll probably do it in the summer so it doesn't interfere with my roller derby announcing. Yeah, personal projects, I mean... In, in lieu of that, how would a troop try to get onto the run? I mean, you said sign up. Um, a troop would probably want to start first, you know, if it was just... If it were people that were not already performers of the Torch, you can sign up for Cage Match. Cage Match is truly is non-curated, no auditions. You sign up for a spot, you show up, you got 25 minutes, do what you want, you know? We had guys show up one time, they were called Beachprov, and they stripped down and they performed in Speedos. Fine. <laughs> you know, cage matches definitely, if you go to if you go to thetorchtheatre.com and you can sign up for cage match, like I said, it's literally anybody can do anything. All, all it has to be is it has to be long form. You can't, you, we, you can't show up and do a short form show. It has to be some sort of long form improvised show, but it can be anything by anybody of any experience level. Once you have dipped your toe in the water and you're sort of known to the people at the Torch, then if you want to do a run, you can sign up for a run and say, this is what I'd like to do. This is our coach. This is our direction, things like that. But the stage is open. There's there's jams at the Torch the first Saturday of every month. Which is this Saturday? Yeah, it was it's this Saturday. Oh, um, it's well, it'll be. Yeah. Well, <laughs> but I was going to say, it's also the night of the Electric Light Parade, so beware. But the first Saturday of every month is at 7 p.m. is called Bingo Jam. There's a free drop-in intro to improv workshop from 2.30 to 5.30. If you've ever been interested in just checking it out, it's free. You just show up. You get kind of a, a condensed version of what the level one class would be like over three hours on a Saturday afternoon. 
And if it's something you want to do, you can stick around for the free jam, and then you can sign up for classes after that. But it's a great way to kind of like get a get a taste for it. So I guess that's the thing I'll tout is the free drop-in. That free drop-in is a great thing. Love it. It's really great. Finally, you've already given us a couple gyms, but if you were to find somebody who was trying to pursue the path you took, you know, on the first day of it, what one piece of advice would you want to give them? I I will I will uh, baldly steal from Nike and say just do it, just do it, just do it, just you. People, myself included, but people are always so afraid of embarrassing themselves, and as am I. But, you know, we're all grown-ups, and you're going to be at a place if, if you're interested. In, and, and this goes for all art. Just do art. A really quick story. When I was the first, when the, the first Storyline show, which was back in September, I got up and I told the story. The story went really well. I tend to tell humorous stories. They're not, they're, they're not rehearsed. I get up and I just do <laughs> improvised storytelling. I hit whatever points I can think of in six minutes, and that's that. So after the show, this woman comes up to me. She was probably between 19 and 21, real tall, skinny, bleach blonde hair, and she's really nervous. And she comes up, she goes, excuse me. I was like, yeah? And she's like, here. She hands me an index card. And she says, I love going to watch performers and sketching them while they perform. It's what I do. And she had sketched me, you know, with she had like a marker set. I'd seen her back there. I didn't know what she was doing, but she just handed it to me. And she's like, you can keep it. You can throw it out if it's weird. And I was like, it's not weird at all. That's beautiful. She's like, okay. And she had a card for everybody during, and she's like, oh, and she's like looking to see the next person in her stack. And she had sketched me. And then on the back, she'd written down some of the details of my story and had drawn little sketches of, the, of seven cats. Cause I mentioned the seven cats that my wife and I have in our one bedroom apartment. And it was like, so that's my thing. Like not just, not, not only just do it, but do art. Do whatever art you want. Pick an art and do it. She came to that show. She paid five bucks to get in. And then she sketched people on note cards and handed them to them and then went home happy as a clam. It was like, it was a minor epiphany for me. And it was just kind of like, yeah, just do whatever you want. Make your own art. You know, like that's, shit, that's, that's what she wanted to do was to come and sketch people on note cards and be like, here you go. Throw it out if you want. Throw it back in my face. I don't care. Or keep it. I kept it. I put it on Facebook. But yeah, just... It's not for everybody, but if anybody feels like they, you know, it's like, I've always wanted to try. Yes. Yes. Yes and, if you will. Right, yeah. Yes and. But yeah, you know, if you've ever been like, I've always wanted to, you could do it. There's nothing stopping you, man. Just do it. I love it. All right, Clifton, thank you so much for your time. Yeah, thanks for having me, and thanks for coming to Nimelake, and thank you for supporting live theater in the Valley of the Sun. I always say at the end of shows. Special thanks to Nick Machete for writing our theme music and Taylor Machete for all of her support. If you are enjoying the podcast so far, don't forget to follow us and leave nice ratings on Facebook, Twitter, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Pinecast.co. And if you or someone you know is pursuing something artistic in the Phoenix area and you'd like to be on the podcast, write to me at starvingartistphx at gmail.com.